If you have your Bible, go to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be in 124 through 29 today. We've been studying Colossians. If you don't have a scripture journal, there are these little booklets that we've got sitting out there on the table. Those are a gift to you um, for you to track along with if you would like. They've got some places for notes. Um, and so go grab one of those if you'd like. Um, so let me read Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Okay, um, well, before we jump into Colossians 1 24, I actually want to read a different text uh, that is going to help us immensely as we walk through uh, Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Uh, I'm going to read you a text from 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 22. So if you have your Bible, you want to go there, great. It will be on the screen um, if you just want to follow along. So this is Paul talking about how he has suffered in his life. He's being accused of being self-serving. So here he is defending his devotion to Jesus. And so I want to read this to preface our text in Colossians because I think it will help us understand what Paul is saying in our text today. So I'll start in verse 22 in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. I mean, think about that. Countless. Paul had been beaten so many times that he doesn't even bother to count. He says, countless. I'll tell you what, if I ever get beaten for Jesus, you're going to know about it. And I'm going to keep count. I'm going to journal about it, blog about it. Maybe I'll start a TikTok. I don't know. I'm too old for that. Um, but I would for sure keep count, right? Uh, like if you asked me, how many times have you eaten the number 54 at Sol de Jaliscos? I'd say, countless. I can't keep count. But Paul, he doesn't even bother to count how many times he's been beaten. Verse 24, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So 39 lashes on your back with a leather belt by, by someone who's trained to torture you. Maybe they had pieces of metal or shells attached to the leather belt. We don't know. The Jewish historian Josephus talks about when this happens. And he would say by the time it was done, the back would be so filleted that you could see their bone and internal organs. And not only did this happen to Paul one time, it happened twice, three times. Imagine the scars healing, then being ripped back open four times, five times. Can you imagine what Paul's back looked like? The scars. Verse 25, he says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
I'm afraid to go in the sea. Night and day, he says, I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, the people he's trying to reach, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I mean, Paul was always in danger, always. I mean, not once I can imagine that he put his head down at night without something looming over him, something that was threatening him. Like me, I've never been threatened in my life, not really. I've been in a couple questionable scenarios overseas, but nothing too serious. I remember when I told my family I was going to be a pastor, one of the first questions my sister asked me was, well, aren't you afraid someone's going to shoot you while you're preaching? That was her first question. I don't remember. (laughs) Uh, I think there was a news story going around at the time that someone got shot while they were preaching, but I don't remember what I said, but what I would say now is this is Texas. Everyone in here is, well, half the people in here are packing, so this is probably the safest I'll ever be. Um, but Paul, every night he went to bed knowing that the next day could be his last. Verse 27, he says, In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all the churches. Now let me read verse 24 in Colossians again. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. That is an incredible statement. I rejoice in my sufferings. When I'm beaten, I rejoice. When I'm whipped on the back, I rejoice. When I'm shipwrecked, I have joy. When I'm hungry and cold, I rejoice. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And the question that we have to ask today is why? Why does Paul rejoice in his sufferings? So there are two primary questions we're going to ask in order to answer that first question. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on verse 24 today, okay? Like 98% of our time, and then we'll tie together the rest of the verses Uh, at the end, because verse 24 really is the central piece here. Everything flows from verse 24. But the two questions we have to ask today is, one, what does Paul mean when he says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? We, We can't ignore that. We have to answer that question. And two, what does it have to do with the church? And the overarching umbrella of all of this is the sufferings of Paul. So we're gonna connect all of that. So what does Paul mean when he says he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, and what does that do, have to do with the church? So let's start with question one. I hope you guys are ready. Here we go. First, we have to understand what Paul isn't saying here. We have to understand what Paul isn't saying. And that statement, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, it can appear to mean that when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus suffered, when he had nails driven through his hands, that in some way, that was not enough. That when Jesus was afflicted, that in some way, he fell short. And if you had access to only this one verse in the scripture, perhaps you could read it that way. But the grace, by the grace of God, we don't just have this one verse. We have 66 books, 1,118 chapters, 31,102 verses, and scripture interprets scripture, right? If you don't understand what's happening in one place, then you can go to the entirety of Scripture to help make sense 
of what you don't understand. And the rest of Scripture is crystal clear on this matter. That Scripture makes crystal clear that one, Christ did suffer. He did suffer. And two, is that his suffering and death was sufficient to bring about salvation for the one who has faith. So Isaiah 53, 4, classic text. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. What part of that feels unfinished? That feels complete. There's no doubt that Christ suffered, and the Bible does not hold back when it speaks about the afflictions of Christ. I don't think I need to convince you of that. And so not only did he suffer, but his suffering and death was sufficient. Look at Romans 3.23. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation is an incredibly important word for all of us to know. Okay, um, that word propitiation, um, it means to appease, right? At the core of its meaning, it means specifically to appease the wrath of God. So there is a satisfaction that happens when Jesus' blood was spilled, right? And propitiation is one image that God gives us that is the root of a lot of ideas and images that we see in Scripture. Propitiation is the root of it, this idea of appeasing the wrath of God and the blood of Jesus covering us. So throughout Scripture, you have these different images that come from that. One is justification, right? That's a courtroom image. It's the picture of a guilty person showing up in a courtroom and being declared right that someone would take their sentence for them. Colossians 2.14, which we'll cover in a couple weeks. Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses. We've been made alive in Christ by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Check this out. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And there's nothing lacking in that. Every debt that we have had has been paid by Jesus through the cross. The Bible uses slavery language that brings about this picture of redemption. It's the idea that you have been bought out of slavery, that you've been renewed, you've been redeemed. We see images throughout the Bible of a conquering warrior, someone who came to defeat the enemy that enslaves us, and he takes its place. He defeats the sin and shame that rules us. He is the conquering king. We see uh, the idea of expiation. It's, it's, the, it's the image that sin has been taken away. It's been removed from me. Like picture a waterfall. I am dirty. I'm a sinner because of my sin and my shame. And Christ's blood, like a waterfall, washes me clean Sin has been removed. We see a dinner table, a picture of reconciliation, that me and God are enemies. I am hostile to God. But through Jesus, we have been reconciled. We can gather at the table, and we can worship through reconciliation. Right? And in every way that the Bible will explain what was accomplished through Jesus on the cross, there is not an ounce of doubt. His death was final, and it was sufficient. 1 Peter 2.24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by 
his wounds you have been healed. So, if you can know for sure that what Paul isn't saying is that the death of Jesus is not sufficient, then the question becomes, so what in the world does Paul mean? <laughs> like, if we can say with complete confidence that nothing is missing in Christ's afflictions in their atoning worth, that only Jesus, through his suffering and through his death, can your sin be atoned for. Paul can't cover your sin, right? He's not saying, my blood covers your sin, you're forgiven through me. That's not what he's saying. Only the blood of Jesus can cover your sin. So why does he say then, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? And this is where we have some debate on the exact meaning of this passage. So throughout church history, there have been several evolving thoughts about this passage. No one, and, and, and by the way, no one of really any significance has ever believed that Paul is casting doubt on the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work in this passage, um, that there was something actually lacking in Christ's afflictions. The debate has been around, well, so what? So what is Paul actually saying then? So let's go to class, church. You ready? I like church history. Um, and so the question is, what is Paul saying? Here are some evolving thoughts throughout the years of what this text is actually saying. So I'll give you a quick summary, and then I'll tell you where I'll land, where I land on this. So this is one of those moments where I have to say, I have to say, and be clear, if you disagree with where I land on this text, that is okay. That is okay. None of these views are putting into question the person of Christ, his work on the cross, are the worth of his affliction. So this is one of those things where the church can disagree with one another uh, and still have fellowship. As you listen, just know that none of these differing views, they're not threatening any, any kind of doctrine of Christ, doctrine of salvation, or any doctrine, really, um, that would cause division. So just want to preface that um, before we jump into these. Here are just, I'm going to give you just three historical views surrounding this passage. Guys like John Calvin and the Reformers would teach something called the mystical union, okay? Uh, the mystical union focus, focuses largely on the mystery of the union between the head, Christ, and the body, the church. And the idea is that Christ suffered once, and that was sufficient, but now Jesus dwells within his body, and he is suffering with them daily as they suffer. So Christ is in us, and so now Jesus also suffers, just as he suffered on the cross, but he is still suffering with his people, with his church, with his body um, every day. And so part of that view is presenting Colossians 1.24, that they would say, therefore, we as the body of Christ are filling up the suffering of Christ as we live for him in this life. And that was the prominent view of Colossians 1.24 for like hundreds of years. Um, that, that was the prominent view of Colossians 1.24 until about the 1950s, okay? Around the 1950s, there was a new interpretation of this text that began to rise and began to become the most popular view of this text. This view of Colossians 1.24 is known as the messianic woes or the woes of the Messiah. Anybody ever heard of this? Perfect, good. Then you just have to believe me when I say it. Um, so this interpretation, uh, based on some alleged parallels in Jewish literature, and by the way, some very prominent, like probably people that you podcast 
uh, believe in this. And I don't mean to say there's, there's nothing wrong necessarily with this view. It's very centered on what you believe about eschatology, so the end times, apocalyptic literature. It's very centered on what you believe about that. Um, that's very popular in people who believe about the woes of the Messiah. But here's what it believes. This interpretation, based on Jewish and Jewish literature, claims that the church needs to fulfill a certain quota of sufferings prior to the return of Jesus, that there is a definite amount of time that the people of God will suffer. And those sufferings are being trimmed down by men like Paul, who exerted himself and absorbed more than his fair share of these sufferings. So the idea is the more Christians embrace sufferings for Christ, the more that definite amount of time will be trimmed down until Jesus comes back. Does that make sense? So the more you suffer, the sooner Christ will come. That's a very brief summary of the Messianic woes. So that's the second view. Now, if you want to know more about that, Google it. It's very fascinating, very interesting. But in the last 20 years or so, um, there has been a new understanding of this text. And this is the one that I tend to lean towards. I'll tell you why in a moment. It doesn't have a name. Maybe in like 20 years, someone will give it a name. It doesn't need a name. But I'll sum it up like this. What's missing in Christ's afflictions is the presentation of those afflictions to the people for whom he died. So I'll say that again. What's missing in Christ's afflictions is the presentation of those afflictions to the people for whom he died. So Christ was afflicted. He suffered. He died. That work was complete. It was final. Paul's already made clear in Colossians, the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus. There's nothing lacking in him, right? But what is lacking is the presentation of the afflicted Christ to those for whom he died. But there are people all over the world, people in this city, people in this country, people in every people group that exist. There are people that Christ died for. What is lacking is their hearing of those afflictions. I mean, that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He is presenting the afflictions of Christ to the church in Colossae. They lack knowledge of the afflicted Christ. So Paul says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And the next part is so important. For the sake of his body, that is the church. For your sake, I am pointing your eyes towards Jesus, how he suffered and how he died. For your sake, I am putting your gaze on him. And through my suffering, church, I want to show you the suffering of the Savior. My suffering points you to his suffering, that God is gathering his people together and his means of doing that, his means of presenting the afflictions of Christ will be through his church, will be through his people, through human witnesses, that God has appointed us to present the afflictions of Christ. Okay, if you have your Bible, go with me to Philippians chapter 2. It'll also be on the screen if you don't have a physical copy. Um, but Philippians 2 is very helpful in, how, in helping us understand this text. So Philippians 2, starting in verse 25. Uh, in Philippians 2, we meet a man named Epaphroditus. Okay? Uh, remember that, that Paul loved the people in Philippi. Okay? It's one of the few times where he's like, I love you. Usually he's like, let me punch you real quick. Um, but these people he loves. You can read about how God started the church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. I'll just give you a brief summary. He meets Lydia. God opens her mind to under the, understand the scriptures as Paul is teaching. She's the first believer 
in Philippi, and then he leaves that place, and he meets a demon-possessed woman, and through a demonstration of the power of God, he frees this girl from a demon. She was enslaved, and so because that demon was gone, they couldn't use her for money anymore, uh, but that girl is slave. She's a second believer. Those guys who owned that girl um, complained and turned Paul into the local authorities. He's beaten, and then he's put in jail, and while in jail, God brings an earthquake. This is an insane story. God brings an earthquake, breaks the doors open. The jailer's getting ready to kill himself because during Roman law, if you were a soldier and you lost your prisoner, then that life was now yours. So you were supposed to die. So he's getting ready to do his Roman duty. And Paul says, wait, we're still here. And that's the beginning of the church in Philippi. And he loved those people. And so Philippi wants to send Paul a gift. Money, food, clothes, we don't know. But while he is imprisoned in Rome, they want to send him a gift. And Epaphroditus steps up as the one who's going to travel from Philippi to Rome to deliver this gift. We find out that Epaphroditus almost dies doing so. Doing so. And so Paul writes a letter back to the Philippians. Maybe he even sent it with Epaphroditus. We don't know. But I want you to notice the wording that Paul uses when describing what Epaphroditus did on Paul's behalf. So let's read Philippians 2, verses 25 through 30, and I want you to notice in particular verse 30. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and then I will be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. So here's verse 30, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So do you see the similar language there? So Epaphroditus completed, he filled, same word, filled what was lacking and what was needed for the church in Philippi to serve Paul. But what was lacking in the service of the church to Paul? What was lacking was the delivering of the gift and Epaphroditus filled that need. So the church had gathered all this stuff, food, money, clothes, we don't know, but Paul is in Rome, and so someone has to take all that stuff to him. And Epaphroditus says, I will fill in what's lacking. I will deliver that gift to Paul. That specific word, lacking, it only appears in two places. Philippians 2, Colossians 1, right? So it's not an accident that Paul uses that same word in the same way to describe a situation, right? And so I think Paul is communicating a similar idea. So to put it plainly, how many of you are confused? Perfect. To put it plainly, Christ purchased our salvation. The people of God have all they need to be in right relationship with God. Christ did that. It was sufficient. What is lacking here? The delivery of that message. More specifically, Paul is saying, I am filling up through my suffering. In my suffering, the proclamation of Christ's afflictions is happening. The gospel is being presented through my sufferings. 
If you look at the book of Acts, that is the, one of the themes of the book. If you, I mean, it's fascinating. Over and over, God will allow his people to suffer, and through their sufferings, they point to Jesus. After Jesus is raised from the dead, he comes to his disciples. Uh, in Acts 1.8, he says, You will receive power through the Holy Spirit, uh, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in the first six chapters of Acts, it is amazing. The gospel is exploding in Jerusalem in ways that we've maybe never seen here. But it is exploding in Jerusalem. But then what happens in Acts chapter 7? Anybody know? Stephen is stoned. Stephen is killed. And the mob, by the way, the mob that stoned him is led by none other than Paul, formerly known as Saul. But what happens after Acts chapter 7? Persecution begins to rise, right? The Christians in Jerusalem, they're forced to scatter. Where are they, where are they scattering to? Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So think about it. Persecution led to proclamation. Suffering leads to presentation. That's how it's always been. In Acts 9, right after Paul leads the mob that kills Stephen, Paul's walking down the road to Damascus. Jesus appears right in front of him, and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God blinds Saul, Paul, and so he can't see, and so God comes to a guy named Ananias, and he tells Ananias, hey, I want you to go see Saul. And here is what Ananias said in Acts 9, 13. It says, Ananias Answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But look at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Remember what Jesus told Peter? After Jesus dies and he's risen from the grave, he finds Peter on the shore. At this point, Peter has denied him three times. He is in shame, which I'm sure that there are some of you like that in here. It was hard for you to even walk into this place because you have shame. You don't think that God will accept you or that you belong here. That's Peter. And so Jesus recreates the miracle that he first did with Peter, and then he looks at Peter and he says, hey, let's have breakfast. And when breakfast is done, he, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know that I do. He says, feed my lambs. He asks him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know that I do. Jesus asks him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? says that Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him a third time. Peter says, you know everything, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. But then look at what Jesus tells Peter next. John 21, 18. This is what he says. After, imagine that scene, right? The miracle, uh, having breakfast with the risen Savior, the forgiveness. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And it says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. But then look at what Jesus says next. After he says, Peter, you are going to die. It says, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Will you suffer and die? For me. 
And we know from church history that Peter was crucified upside down on a cross. Makes me think of what Tertullian said of the early church. And he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Here's the reality. When we suffer well, we proclaim well. Through our suffering, we get the privilege to fill in what's lacking, the proclamation of the gospel. So most of you in here know uh, Jonathan and Karen Scott. Are they here? So most of you in here know them. I I told them I was going to do this, um, so I'm not surprising them. Um, But they've been members here for a few years now. Back in 2019, their daughter Jenna, along with her friend Michael, were murdered. Um, Just a tragedy. And, and we've had the privilege of walking with them and praying with them. Well, last May, I watched them every day for like over a month sit through the trial of the person who murdered their daughter. And it was one of the most amazing, terrible, tragic, convicting experiences of my life. Every time I would see them, I would so, you, know, you don't know what to say, right? <laughs> like, what do you say? And so you ask, how are you guys holding up? How can I pray for you? And every time, Karen especially, I love Jonathan, right? Jonathan, you're cool. But Karen especially, she would just talk about Jesus. That's what she would do. She would just talk about Jesus. And when she talked about Jesus, I listened. They suffer well for the glory of Jesus When we suffer well, we proclaim well. Have you ever wondered why God just doesn't have angels roaming around the earth, booming his, God's voice booming from heaven? Hey, believe in Jesus. You ever wonder that? One, I don't think that people would believe him because of total depravity, but that's a whole other sermon. Um, But I also think you see a theme in scripture over and over that it is the plan of God for his people to fill up what lacks in the afflictions of Christ. Plainly, it is the plan of God for his people to take the sufferings of Christ into this world. Like if God is going to gather all the nations at his throne at the end of all things, think about it. How has he chosen to do it? He's chosen to use his people, humans, me and you, to complete this task. God, time and time again, will display the glory of Christ through his people. Through his church. Like, let me just show you one example, my favorite example. Go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I'm going to read the first nine verses, and I want you to pay close attention, okay, and see if you see something that seems like it doesn't fit. Okay, so John chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read it. See if you see anything that's off, okay? It says, And the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to Everyone was coming into the world, and then it goes off. Have you ever wondered, why in the world does John the writer interrupt this beautiful introduction of Jesus with what seems to be a random insert about John the Baptist? To me, it's weird, because these verses seem to break the flow 
of John the writer's introduction to the gospel. I mean, they seem sudden. Honestly, if you left verses 5 through 8 out, the text would actually flow better. I mean, if you look at verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And sandwiched between those two beautiful statements, you have an introduction to another character, the person we know as John the Baptist. And I, we have to ask the question, why does God do that? I think it's because in God's perfect plan to reveal himself to humanity, the light is coming. He has chosen to use human witnesses. Abraham, Moses, David, Paul, Isaiah, Peter. I mean, why are these people even necessary? You have to notice the contrast, right? That as the writer John beautifully articulates the divinity of Jesus, he abruptly introduces us to a man, a human named John. Like up until verse six, you have the word and this word was God and the word was with God. He made everything. In him was life and there was a man. (laughs) The shift is confusing because I go, whoa, hold on a second, hold on. Why is it even necessary to include John in this part? This is God. God does not need a witness from us. God is God. He's not dependent on any man or anything. And that is true. God doesn't need me or you for anything. He doesn't need us to help him. He doesn't need us to bear witness about him. If lightning strikes, it does not need a candle to help it light up the night. So what is happening here? If God is not dependent on anything or anyone else, but he sends a man, What is this man's purpose? What does this man do? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. John was a witness. So let's follow this. In the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was with God. And the word shines in the darkness. And now a human has sent by God as a witness about that light. Could it be that in order for the world to see the light that shines in the darkness, in order for the world to see Jesus, could it be that he has chosen that there be human witnesses. That in his plan, he looks to the redeemed people and he says, you, go. You are my witness. That within, within God's plan to redeem and restore all things, he has chosen to bring about redemption through sent witnesses. Jonah and the Ninevites, right? God could have boomed his voice from heaven, could have told them himself to repent, but what does he do, Jonah? One, one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. God could have made lightning fall from the sky. He could have put, burned all the trees down. He could have thrown little notes. Repent from that. I don't know. He could have done anything he wanted. He's God. He chose to bring the word to Jonah. You go, and you tell them. Consider Matthew 9, where Jesus says, It says, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What does he not say? He doesn't say, the harvest is plentiful, so I'm going to boom my voice from heaven. He says, the laborers are few, so pray. What are we praying for? That the Lord would send witnesses into his harvest. We serve a saving God And we serve a sending God. Jesus says, the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He saves us, and then he sends us. But here's the deal. We know that within that saving, within that sending, there will also be suffering. 
that it is the plan of God that his people will suffer. Not only will we suffer, but in verse 24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. And for those of you that know suffering, I know you don't read that lightly. I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, before you begin to think, okay, this is where the preacher just tells us that we have to have joy no matter what's going on in my life. Right? Well, I know suffering is happening, but you know, just praise God. Just, just, just joy is, uh, Jesus is good. That's what happens, right? No. no. Rejoice in my sufferings does not mean that we act as if suffering is not present. I mean, that Paul doesn't do that. Paul talks about his suffering. Rejoice in my sufferings does not mean you act as, as if sufferings don't happen. I mean, when you lose a child like Karen and John have, when you lose a parent, when you lose your job, whatever issue, big or small, sorrow and rejoicing do not cancel each other out. One does not replace the other because for the one who knows Jesus, they can happen simultaneously. We can carry sorrow, yet always rejoice. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with each other, that's how it will always be. That we all have sorrows, yet we are called to be a people of joy in the midst of that suffering. This is why it's important that we're intentional with one another, that we need to be aware of the sorrows that we each carry. Like if you don't feel the weight of the sorrows of those around you, I'm going to step out in faith and say, you probably need to have more honest conversations with people because people are carrying sorrows. They're carrying pain. They're carrying conflict. And God has called us to carry that with one another, that we all feel that weight, conflict, pain, and sorrow. But that does not mean that we are not always rejoicing. And here's what just confuses the world, right? How are we always rejoicing? Because we have something that is better than our sorrows. Second Corinthians 6.10, Paul says about the believer, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have something, something that is better, and we have someone who is coming back for us, preparing a place for us that is better. And I guarantee that in that place, we're going to wonder how we got so caught up in all these earthly pleasures. Like maybe we look back and we say, how can I be been so obsessed with that? How could in the, in the world that I make an idol of that? How could I have overeaten so much? How could I have cared so much about my money? How, how could I have indulged in things like pornography and gossip and lies that we would here now see the goodness of God, that he's infinitely more pleasurable than the pleasures of this world? And, and when God is the most pleasurable thing in our lives, we can look in the face of suffering and say, do what you will to me. The one who suffered and died for me is better. And then we point not to our own suffering, but we point to Jesus and we say, I suffer for him. I fill in what's lacking. I want you to know how good he is. That is why I suffer. He can save you too. There is hope in your suffering. There was some, someone who suffered on your behalf. He's better than you can imagine. And so we point to others in our sufferings. So in case you don't know, I have a tattoo. Don't hate me. Um, I actually have two. Ooh, whoops. Um, I've got two, one on each wrist. Uh, they're small. I can hide them. 
Um, but uh, the one on my wrist says 2024. I left out, it's a reference to Acts 2024. I left Acts off and it, over here it says he is better. I left Jesus off just in case Katie and I ever go overseas. You know, I'm going to be smart. Um, but it says 2024. I've actually been patiently waiting for the year 2024. Uh, I'm praying that someone at some point sees it and is like, oh, what's so special about 2024? And I'm like, let me tell you about Jesus, you know? Um, but I get one shot it's this year. Um, so I just pray that that happens. Uh, but Acts 2024 has carried me through a lot of suffering. Uh, when my grandmother had dementia, my mom and I were taking care of her when I was in high school. Um, she would go in a moment from thinking I was her late husband, which was always awkward, uh, to not knowing who I was, and screaming and yelling and just thinking that I was breaking into the house. My parents got divorced. I would read Acts 20:24. My grandma was going crazy. I'd read Acts 20:24. 20, uh, when my dad took his own life, I read Acts 20:24 20, over and over and over and over again. When my mom was slowly dying from a stroke, Katie and I had just gotten married. She was asleep on it. Twin bed across the hospital room. I opened my Bible and I read Acts 20:24. When Katie and I were at a really difficult point in our marriage, and I was sleeping in the guest room, I read Acts 20:24. When I feel insecure as one of your pastors, like I drowning because I don't know what I'm doing, I read Acts 20:24. Here's what it says: But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So here's the question. When you suffer, how do you do it? Do you suffer well? Do you run to Jesus to let him fill you up with his joy, with his hope, from the biggest to the smallest, how do you fill in what's lacking in Christ's afflictions when you lose a child, when you have cancer, when you have that disease, when your marriage is in shambles, when you lose your job, when you, the small things happen in life, but they feel immense. Your family's sick. You're in conflict with someone. Your business isn't going how you thought it would. I mean, whatever. You feel like you're not enough for your kids, for your spouse, for your friends, not enough to make a difference in the world, will you set your eyes on him and answer the call? I will, like Peter, here's what's happening. Here's what's going to happen. Will you follow me? How do you answer that? Will we be the church that says, I will fill in what's lacking? Whatever you bring us as a church, God, whatever this discomfort, whatever the sufferings, we will fill in the gap. We will fill in what's lacking and present the afflicted Christ to the world. Suffering with and for Jesus is better than gaining all the treasure of the world without him. Now we can move on to verse 25. I'm just kidding. We're done. (laughs) But I do want to read the text again. And I hope that this time as you listen, you see these verses with new eyes can hear what Paul is saying, and we can ask the question, am I willing 
to rejoice in my sufferings and fill in what's lacking? Am I willing to warn others? Am I willing to teach others? Am I willing to toil and to struggle with all his energy and pray that he powerfully works within me? So as I read this and then we close, ask those hard questions. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now listen to the rest. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship for God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. May that be our prayer as a body, as a church goes into the world.